Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Well, the topic of tonight's event, our social and political responses to the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak, has certainly been at the top of just about all of our minds these past few weeks. It's hard to remember anything of a public health nature in recent memory that has caused as much anxiety or alarm. Uh, here's the story so far. We know that in late December 2019, there were reports of a supposed new virus being discovered in the Chinese city of Wuhan. By late January, the Chinese government had begun imposing travel restrictions, suspending travel to and from Wuhan, and started to build new hospitals to house coronavirus patients. Here in Australia, at the start of February, the government announced that it would bar entry to non-citizens entering the country from China. Uh, later that month, more than 200 Australians were evacuated from Wuhan and sent to Christmas Island for quarantine. Uh, later that month as well, 19 Australians on board the Diamond Princess cruise ship were evacuated and sent to Darwin for quarantine. We've seen movements in the markets more recently. Stock markets have taken a series of tumbles as the economic consequences of the coronavirus become clear. But of course, it's the human cost that has alarmed us the most. Globally, there are now 88,000 confirmed cases of infection with close to 3,000 deaths. While more than 95% of cases of confirmed infection are in China, COVID-19 has also been detected in 59 other countries, with countries including South Korea, Iran and Italy recently reporting significant increases of infections. And the situation is, of course, moving very fast. Over the weekend, the US, Thailand and here in Australia uh, reported uh, the first deaths from coronavirus. Uh, the 78-year-old man who died in Australia had contracted the disease on the Diamond Princess cruise ship. Uh, over the weekend, Health Minister Greg Hunt also announced a travel ban on Iran. And uh, as further illustration of how quickly things are moving just today, the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases in Australia is now 29. And about an hour and a half or two hours ago, New South Wales Health confirmed the first case of a person-to-person -person transmission in Australia. So that's the background to tonight's panel, and there's a lot for us to get through. The outbreak of disease is always, of course, accompanied by fear. But in the case of COVID-19, has that fear also taken on some racialized dimensions? What role has misinformation or disinformation played, and what does it say about our global digital age? How effectively have governments, both here and elsewhere, responded to this global health emergency and apparent looming pandemic? Does viral panic, in fact, pose as significant a threat to us as the COVID-19 virus itself? And last but not least, what exactly is going to happen next? These are all big questions for us right now, and tonight they'll be tackled by our expert panel. We've drawn together a panel uh, from a range of perspectives to help answer these questions, and tonight we find out what happens when you put an epidemiologist, a historian, a member of parliament, 
a student representative and a university vice-chancellor together to respond to the pressing issue of the day. I'm now going to invite our panellists to, to join the stage, uh, but let me introduce them to you individually. Uh, first, uh, Ying Chang is an associate professor here at the University of Sydney, and, and Ying, please, please join us on stage, uh, and has over 15 years' experience conducting research on climate and health. Ying's research focuses on building community resilience to changing climate and environment, especially for the most vulnerable populations in the Asia-Pacific region. We also have joining us uh, Jenny Leong, MP, the member for Newtown in the New South Wales Parliament. Jenny is also the Greens New South Wales spokesperson for multiculturalism and human rights. She was first elected in 2015, is a passionate advocate for equality, justice and human rights. Earlier in her career, Jenny worked for Amnesty International in London, Hong Kong and Sydney and she's also an alumna of this university and served as a fellow of the University Senate when she was a student here. Next, Dr. Sophie Loy-Wilson. Sophie is a historian who specialises in the social and cultural history of Australia's engagement with China. Her research is on labour rights and Chinese coolie migration to Australia and the Pacific. And prior to taking up a position in the Department of History here at the University, she worked as a postdoctoral fellow in the Laureate Research Program in International History and was a lecturer at Deakin University. Next, Abby Shi. Abby is a student in law and political economy here at the university and she's also the general secretary of the Student Representative Council. Abby was a key organiser of petition that called for the delay in the start of semester at the university uh, given that a considerable number of the student cohort hasn't been able to return to Australia due to the travel ban applying to China. And last but not least, uh, Michael Spence, Vice-Chancellor of the University. He's been Vice-Chancellor since 2008, an alumnus of the University. Michael graduated with first-class honours in English, Italian and law. He also speaks Chinese and Korean. He's an expert in intellectual property and, as many of you would know, was recently announced as the new president of UCL, University College London, and he will be commencing his appointment in London in January 2021. Uh, Let's open it up with a question to you, Ying, as our public health expert on the panel. Now, there's been a lot of talk about the situation escalating from a global health emergency to being a pandemic. Now, pandemic sounds pretty alarming, uh, but I'm not sure all of us necessarily know what a pandemic really means. Can you explain to us what the significance of a declaration of a pandemic means if we do get to that stage with, uh, with a global declaration of a pandemic. Okay, thank you. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here to talk about um, this crucial situation here. Um, in epidemiology, there are different levels of disease outbreaks. Uh, we call it an outbreak when there is a sudden increase in the number of cases in a particular geographic area. Uh, when the outbreak is rapidly spreading beyond that geographic area, we call it ap um, epidemic. And, and um, pandemic is where the um, epidemic is rapidly spreading in many other countries as well. So technically, WHO hasn't announced or declared uh, a, pandic, a pandemic is upon us yet. Um, it's not a simple decision to make. The, uh, it's, it's all based on risk assessment. The severity of a um, pandemic 
the risk is assessed by three factors in general. One is the transmission uh, ability of the uh, virus, uh, how fast the virus can be transmitted uh, in the community. And the second is the um, uh, how many people affected the severity of the symptoms. And the third one is the impact on the health sectors. And we recently see um, the really high mortality of the COVID-19 in Iran, which mainly because of the relatively weak public health and health sectors in that country. So we have pandemics around the world from time to time. If you look at recent years, we've had pandemics such as the H1N1 pandemic, we've had SARS, which many of you will have heard of, MERS is another example. Uh, can you talk us through how the COVID-19 coronavirus compares with those pandemics we've had in, in recent memory? Uh, technically, um, this century, the only pandemic that declined by WHO is the H1N1 swine flu, which um, kills more than, um, uh, in my memory, it's uh, 280,000 people. And the death rate is really high. Uh, in, compared with SARS, uh, the um, contagious uh, among people is really um, faster than what we are having. Uh, sorry, the, the other way around. The SARS is not spreading as fast as this um, COVID-19 epidemic here, um, but has a relatively higher mortality uh, rate compared with COVID-19. Uh, all um, we can see here based on data available at the moment, currently we have the death rate in China around 2.5%. Uh, um, and majority of the cases uh, of the COVID-19 is mild. And uh, in Australia, we only just confirmed the first person-to-person -person case in, in, in uh, Australia. So then you can see how um, the, the WHO hasn't yet declared pandemic for this, uh, this time here. So if things continue and we see more cases of infection, can you talk us through what we would have to, to do differently in terms of our everyday life here. And, and I wanted to uh, just play a, a, a clip because it may mean that we may not be able to... So that, that, that's a clip that's been doing the rounds and it's uh, from, from China and in response to advice for people no longer to greet each other with handshakes or with a kiss on the cheek, um, this, this being one reason I've, I've heard put forward for why there's been a spike in, in Italy uh, of, of the coronavirus because of the customary kissing on the cheek as a, as a greeting. No, no, not, meant, not meant as a joke, I mean that absolutely seriously. Uh, Ying, can I get your uh, expert view on this? Um, should, should we be thinking about how we go about greeting people and, and, and change uh, our, our normal way of saying hello to people in light of, uh, of, a, of a likely pandemic? Uh, I think um, to answer your question, yes, we have to reflect on our, um, the impact on our daily life because of the epidemic. Uh, 
in technically, in practice, we need to strengthen our public health responses uh, systems. Australian government has already announced the um, health emergency response plan, which uh, cl clarified what kind of uh, measures we can have in case the pandemic and more uh, and more cases are confirmed in Australia. Although we are having a uh, relatively robust health system compared with other countries, we still need to take a precautionary approach uh, to prepare for the worst in order to protect people's health. So in individually, I think we need to think about uh, the risks and make your decisions based on reliable information. Jenny Leon, let me bring you in here. Ying mentioned the Australian government's response to this issue. How, how do you rate the government's response to the, the coronavirus outbreak. Has it been a, a good one? Look, look I think and it, it's really important to say up front, I'm, unlike Ying, I'm, I'm definitely not a public health expert. I'm not an expert in this virus. Um, I'm not an expert in the tips or the information that people need to be aware of in terms of being able to contain and protect their own public health. But I would say after um, over a decade of being involved in politics and having made a decision to enter from performance studies department into the land of politics at the Easter University around the time that Pauline Hanson and John Howard were in their place whipping up racism and fear. I do consider myself to be quite an expert in um, the use of whipping up racist fear in the political spectrum. And I think that it is really, really important when we look at this response that while we might not have immediate concerns about how the government at a national or a state level have been dealing with this, it is standing on the track record of a shift from what we've seen within migration and immigration to a system called border force. It is shifting on the idea of putting people into quarantine on Christmas Island with the long history of what has occurred with the treatment of asylum seekers and refugees on Christmas Island, and we can't ignore those facts in how that is being brought to bear. And one of the most important things that I think, and one of the most concerning things that I think is not being factored in here, and you look at the travel ban imposed in relation to China, and I know we'll probably speak more about whether or not people have the money to be able to travel to a third country and then come back. It appears to be that actually the size of your wallet the colour of your skin or the colour of your passport is determining whether or not you will get an adequate public health response as opposed to how it should be, which is that everybody that is part of our community should be getting the same treatment and the same care. And it, I, I call to mind and I acknowledge the international students at this university that are doing it really tough. But I think we also need to remember that there are students from the African continent that are studying in Wuhan that actually don't have the same luxury of wealthy governments to be able to send in um, planes to be able to evacuate their citizens and they're not getting the support that's needed. And so I think we really need to recognise that if we are moving to the idea of this becoming a pandemic, the pandemic will not be looking at people's colours of their skin or their passport as to who they infect. And so the government response needs to be a public health one that actually is also recognising the need to treat everybody equally across that spectrum. You mentioned racism and fear as factors, Jenny. Yeah. Have, have you detected an increase in the experience yeah. of racism by Chinese Australians and Asian Australians? Yeah, look, it's, look, it wasn't until today that I had a personal one myself. So, um, you know, and I think it's important for us to be really frank and open about how hard it is to do 
what we do. And I particularly wanted to give a shout out to Abby, who I know has been on the front line of doing a lot of media around this. But, um, you know, I was walking to my local IGA supermarket in Newtown today, and there was a big, you know, um, keep our children safe from the, the Chinese flu. And, you know, it's like that's just standing there as I've just taken my um, daughter to, to gym class and just dropping in to get some bread on the way home. I don't, you don't need that in your life. Now, that is a very small that is a very small thing. But we have seen people being evicted from their homes. We've seen people being discriminated in their workplaces. We've seen people being attacked on public transport. We know this happens anyway, right? We know that the level of abuse that can occur to people not speaking English on public transport is already significant. And yet we see this escalating at a rapid rate. The big fear here, I think, is that what we see is a public health response to the coronavirus, but we don't see a public health response to the increased amount of discrimination and racism that people suffer as a result of this. And I think when we're talking about the investment that is needed, we need to see the investment in this health crisis as beyond just the health impacts of those that make contract the virus, because in actual fact, like the, the virus itself is a scary, scary thing. And as we know, and as we hear from Ying, people are dying from it. But at the same time, we should never, ever, ever forget that people also die from racism and discrimination. And that should be taken just as seriously as the public health outcomes. On racism, Jenny, uh, yeah. is the situation complicated by the fact that you have Chinese and Asian Australians themselves feeling panicked or a sense of fear. For example, we, we know that there's diminished business and custom going through Chinatowns and precincts such as Eastwood or Chatswood here in Sydney. Um, how do you disentangle that from the, the racism that, that yeah, you see swirling I mean, around? I mean, how do, you, how do you make a decision? We say that in this case, one person has died in Australia as a result of this virus. But we know all the time and we look at it when there are rescue packages and mental health support given to farmers during drought, when we look at the financial support given to people that lose their jobs because of the closure of a car factory or a coal port, we know that these things actually get government support and government subsidies to ensure that families don't fall apart, that individuals don't cope. And I question and wonder where that same level of rescue package is for our Chinatowns, for our diverse communities, for our shopkeepers, for our incredible, you know, delicious dumpling makers of this city. And I wonder where that rescue package is and, and sadly because of the type of discrimination that Chinese Australians have faced for so long, I fear that maybe that package won't be coming and it will be up to a community response to be able to engage. And I would hope, you know, I hope we hear from the Vice-Chancellor, but I would hope that we see leadership from our universities, from others, to actually take leadership in saying, no, we, we don't expect our, our international students to be having to front up for fees and rent and all of these things if they can't actually return to the country. How do we actually provide financial support to say, and we want you to be able to have access to the counselling and the support that you need to be able to get through this because it's tough. Well, we'll hear very shortly from, uh, from the Vice-Chancellor, but, but before that, Sophie, can I bring you in and get your perspective as a historian here on, on this issue? Uh, is there historical context to our response to the coronavirus and the fact that this virus originated in China? Look, I will say this, I'm a historian, that's a, a caveat, I will echo Jenny in saying that I, I'm not an expert on the science. 
What, what I do know is that there is a long history of human beings reacting to pandemics, reacting to epidemics uh, with a deep fear of outsiders, a deep fear of difference. So often we couple our fear of the disease itself with a fear of so-called others. Um, uh, so all diseases arrive in our communities in a cultural and social context. So it, it behooves us to educate ourselves about that social and cultural context if we want to come together as a community as opposed to be divided by fear. So obviously in Australia, the uh, social and cultural context around this virus is a very loaded one. So you know, one thing that I study is the very first place in the world to legislate specifically against Asian migration was the colony of Victoria uh, in Australia in 1851. So the very first place in the world to introduce a specific immigration law banning Asian migration. And this, of course, is but one of the many laws that becomes the infamous white Australia policy. So whether we like it or not, we live with this structural, historical, social legacy in our communities. So when we have a community that has um, for a long time experienced uh, being, being um, labelled as outsiders or being labelled as a threat in our society, we need to be particularly sensitive to the way that we discuss issues around disease and issues around infection. What history also teaches us is it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to be divided by these things. We don't have to uh, experience viral panic. We can actually practically uh, and productively come together as, as, as a community uh, and um, work against misinformation and support each other. So I think there are two lessons from history. One is to be vigilant um, against uh, our racism, and the other is that we have the potential as human beings to, to really uh, come together and, and not go in that direction. On the question of vigilance, when the Australian government announced that it would be quarantining Australian evacuees from Wuhan on Christmas Island at the former immigration detention centres, there were many who commented that this involved a form of dog whistling or discrimination. Is that a fair assessment in, in your view when you place it into social and cultural context? Look, I'm, I'm not a bureaucrat. I'm not responsible uh, for organising quarantine. Um, however, I, I do think that uh, the government well knows that around this particular location in Australia has been a lot of noise. Um, and it's, it's well known that this is uh, a place construed in media narratives and I think also political narratives as a place of punishment. You go here if you break our immigration laws. Uh, and so to, to say to people um, who are trying to come here uh, to study or to live that you need to uh, stop here uh, for quarantine, I think it's an odd choice. Maybe there was no other choice, uh, but I think it was an odd choice. Abby, can I bring you in? And, and, and now's an opportunity for us to, to, to get a perspective uh, from a, a student body here at, at the university. Um, there are many thousands of, of our students who haven't been able to join us on, on campus here as a result of the travel ban. Uh, I presume you've been keeping in touch with many of these students in, in China. Um, how, how are the students, our students in China feeling at, at the moment? Well, as in reaction to the travel ban policy, the students that I'm in contact with are feeling very anxious, they're feeling very confused, at the time that they're in fear of coronavirus spreading around in China at the moment, they're also in fear of facing the indefinite future, not knowing when they can come back here.
And uh, I mentioned in the introduction, Abby, that as uh, an SRC leader, you started a petition calling for the university to provide more support for students. So what, what would you like to see the, the university uh, do in its response right now? So um, let, me give, let me give everyone here a bit, a, a bit of the background information on the petition. So on February the 1st, when the trial ban was announced by the Department of Home Affairs, which is barring people who have been in China in the past 14 days in entering Australia border, in, in entering Australian border, that means that there are tens of thousands of international students who are enrolled in Australian tertiary education institutions being unable to catch up their semester start and will be having their academic progression be affected by this policy. So as a response, and also as a student leader from SRC from University of Sydney, I immediately decided on the day that I'm going to call a petition to ask the university to respond and to make system systematic adjustments around the around this policy. So the idea is that we have gathered electronically signed signature for, for over um, around 6,000 number in the course of two days. That is to call for university first to, to delay the semester start. Second, that is to call for university to set the latest arrival date. So before that date, if a student can still get back to campus, they will be able to attend classes normally and finish their exams. The third is to have the physical policy of international student tuition fee refund being adjusted. So in the past, international students, if they decide to defer their studies, uh, apply for withdrawal before the census day, they can only have 50% of their tuition fee being refunded to bank accounts, but after, but after the petition, which the university have responded, now it's 100% cash refund to the student's bank account, forces that to ask university to have online delivery of courses for students who are stranded back in China as part of the university's systematic support. The fifth is, is that to start this anti-racism campaign on campus to make students to feel welcome as a part of the community here at University of Sydney. So that's the content of the petition. Um, a lot of time when it's being picked up by the, by the media, it's, it's oftentimes being oversimplified. But I believe that the petition has been, has been evolving into this ongoing conversation between student body and university that we're together exploring resolution to this situation right now. Yeah. Michael Spence, can I bring you in? The University of Sydney has been working through its response to this issue. As I mentioned, many thousands of our students haven't been able to join us on, on campus just yet. Can, can you talk us through just what the university is prioritising in its response to the, the COVID-19 issue? So the most important thing for us is to make sure that students who've already started their studies with us can finish their education and to make sure that students who have been um, often saving for years um, to come to the university and who are very excited, like all students when they um, are setting out on a university course, that they're able to join us. And um, because the situation has been unfolding, our response has also been unfolding um, with the desire to make sure that um, the students who are affected are as impacted as little as possible. And so we've put um, uh, over a thousand um, units of study online. Um, about half of those you'll be able to study for the whole semester, so you can actually do your whole first semester um, away from the university. Um, about half of them uh, that involve science labs and the rest of it. Um, you can do up to March the 30th on, um, on, on, online and then you would need to be here on the census date in order to um, finish the semester. But we're also, as the, as the, the travel bans progress, 
looking at options like um, uh, compressing some, uh, having a, an, an intensive winter school and then a um, semester, a, a second semester option for people and then an intensive summer school so that you could enter the second year having done a first year that is not compressed in terms of sort of um, intellectual content but is compressed um, in terms of time as a possibility. And with um, several of our major courses, um, we did delay the start um, of, of the course for, uh, for two weeks. Interestingly, the um, largest group that complained about that, um, in fact, I think of all the letters that came to my office complaining about the delay for the start of semester, um, were from Chinese students who said, well, I made it here. Um, and um, so um, I've already, um, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm paying rent. Um, why can't I go to class? And I think it's, um, it's really important to remember that in the university's response, what we're trying to do as much as possible is to um, respond to the needs of each individual student. And, you know, there are um, call lines and all the rest of it, and, and to communicate as much as we possibly can with each individual student and with their families so that they can think through their options. Um, because one of the problems, I think, of the kind of othering that Sophie talked about is that um, you, th there can be a ten terrible generalisation that goes on about um, the Chinese or Chinese students or whatever it might be when we're talking about a um, country as um, you know, big as Europe with a population of 1.4 um, billion people, and when we're talking amongst our students of people whose life situation is very different. So part of what we're trying to do is make sure that we um, respond to students individually, as well as thinking about having lots of different ways of um, accommodating people's needs so that they can continue their studies. And I have to say, I'm just very, very grateful to the university staff because within two weeks, um, alternative arrangements had been made for over a thousand units of study. And that's just, that's a huge effort on behalf of the university staff. Michael, it's very clear that the university sector in Australia will be hit hard by the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, over the, the weekend, there was you know, some commentary about the sentiment in some government circles about Australia's universities. Uh, in particular, an article from Peter Harcher cited some discussions in the coalition party room where uh, some members of the government spoke about having a sympathy for the tourism industry but not having sympathy for the university sector because it's been over-reliant on Chinese international students to cite one quotation used over the weekend. Universities rode the cycle up, now they can ride the cycle down. Is that fair to Australian universities? Um, so I'd just like to call this out because, and I am going to use the word racism, because I just think that is plain old-fashioned racism. Right? It's okay for Chinese people to come here from China as tourists because they go home again. Right? And in fact, most students go home at the end of their course, but that's by the by. But the notion that we might be 
engaging with the young people of China in the exchange of ideas, in research, in education, somehow that's threatening or problematic or not so good. So there's sympathy for the tourism industry because that's okay, you can have Chinese people here for a week, but if you have them here for three or four years, really as a part of our community, engaging in, 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 in the life of the mind, that's somehow problematic. That's to me just old-fashioned racism. And I am deeply proud of the fact that the University of Sydney, when it was founded, um, William Charles Wentworth said, we will draw students from all over the world um, if you read his speech in the Legislative Assembly. And we do, we draw students here from 140 countries. True, about just over half of our international students come from China. You'd expect that, given the, globally num uh, the, 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 the number of Chinese students who are globally mobile. I am very proud of our work in international education and research. It's what stops this place being a bit of a um, hick place in a cultural backwater and actually makes us a part of the international conversation, and I will not apologise for it. Strong words there from I feel strongly from you, about from that stuff, you can tell. Uh, Jenny Leong, can I bring you in yeah. on this? You, you've talked about racism manifesting in overt forms, in the form of abuse or vilification. Mm -hmm. uh, does Michael have a point here in identifying what may be more insidious forms of racism within our discourse? Yeah, look, I, I think there's a few things there, and I think it's, you know, I feel like the... Um, there's, there's lots to unpack about this because a lot of it's very hard to take all of this in, the con in, in isolation from the broader context around the defunding of the public education system, of the fact that actually we see universities having increased market pressures such that the need to have international students pay exorbitant fees to be able to come to the university is not something necessarily of universities choosing but of a, a broader government, of successive governments move to, you know, going back to the day to, to move and put those pressures on. So I think in the same way that we can't look at the quarantining of people on Christmas Island, and it is worth noting that those people that were on the Diamond Princess were quarantined in Darwin, not on Christmas Island, and I think the question has to be asked if we were stopping people coming from Europe with a travel ban and a border control ban, would we have put them on Christmas Island or in Darwin? I think we should ask that question and I think we probably will know the answer. But I think that one of the things that I would say is, with what Michael has pointed out in terms of that pressure, I think that absolutely there is a genuine view that international students have been contributing large amounts of money to the university sector through fees for a long period of time. The question is then, should that be treated any differently to the tourism industry where people have also, China, people from visiting from China have been contributing large amounts of money to the tourism industry. So I think that that is absolutely uh, something that needs to be called out in terms of that lack of equation. But I do think, I, I would like to take issue with one of the things that Michael said around the idea of not treating all Chinese international students or, or like trying to sort of create a, a, big, uh, a big stereotype of all people doing this because there are some things that are common to international students at this university that are coming from China and that is that they pay the fees and that they are currently probably paying rent and are unable to be in the country. And so they are two practical things that I would say a vast majority of international students would be suffering as a result, and they are things that could be dealt with in a systematic way to actually look at the university advocating for those private student accommodation places to be waiving rent while those students cannot be here, and to be giving them a discount or a refunding their fees, giving those pressures. So I absolutely take it that not everybody's personal circumstances 
a difference and some people really have gone to the effort of being here want to go to class also probably because you know they are feeling the pressure of finishing their degree but I think we need to see that in the broader context that there are some commonalities to all international students that are here they all pay huge fees you know if I had my way all university would be free but you know that's a whole nother conversation for another <laughs> Sydney ideas topic at some point in the future depending on how old the people are in the room they would have had their degrees free I'm sure people probably put their hands after they got a free degree yep there we go um, so I think one of the things that we need to look at in the context of the political discussion is just the absolute failure of leadership and I take it on this one it's completely hypocritical to say oh in tourism we need to subsidize on on education we don't but that's part of a broader agenda. I mean, we had the we had the um, who was it? The assistant minister for multiculturalism saying the most offensive stuff on social media on the weekend around you know how all the Chinese people need to stop eating this and just spreading more more um, vile into the debate. So I don't think we should be expecting much from the current cabinet debate in terms of that. I would hope that those with the health expertise are listening to the people that are the health experts and how to do with it. And maybe we can listen more to the education experts as to how we should deal with the education so, elements. So can I just address the fees issue? You know, we're looking at the fees issue at the, um, at the ways in which we can provide assistance at the moment. Of course, um, the difference between a domestic um, student and an international student is that a domestic student receives a subsidised um, education that an international student doesn't. In fact, the work we're doing to provide online assistance and all the rest of it means that it will be more expensive to teach individual students who um, begin their courses overseas um, than, it is, than it would be if they were here. Nevertheless, this will cause real financial hardship for some people. And one of the ways we're looking at it at the moment is um, how we make sure as we make provision to relieve financial hardship in the international student community, that it does go to the students who need it the most. Um, and that is partly about thinking about people's individual circumstances. I change gears just very quickly uh, and bring you back in, Ying. I've been struck by news reports in recent days which have highlighted some panic buying occurring here in Australia. There have been some reports of shop shelves being stripped bare as people begin stockpiling uh, for uh, the hit of the, the pandemic. Uh, from a public health perspective, uh, how prepared should people be right now? Is, is there such a thing as being too well prepared or being uh, panicked into, into doing this kind of buying? Uh, um, it's it's uh, um, not an easy um, question to answer. Uh, pan panic is, is normal as we are human beings. We can't ignore them. And WHO so far has published about 13 um, technical guidelines, and one of, these, one of them is focused on risk communication. And the principle is we communicate with the public clearly about what has been known and what is um, still need more research to confirm and what has been done and what does it mean to the public, the risk. Um, uh, and uh, there are also um, guidelines to individuals how to protect yourself from the risks, uh, like perhaps higher, uh, including more better hygiene, like wash your hands frequently and uh, uh, avoid contact with um, too many people together and uh, specific... <laughs> Relax, everyone, it's... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Are we all going to get dermatitis from using too much antiseptic wipe? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> So um, th there are some specific questions uh, for individuals to take on to avoid, to reduce the risk to get infections. Um, in terms of whether there's a threshold to trigger the emergency responses or how much to how much, uh, to what degree that the individuals could, you know, stock like food for a few weeks to survive the epidemic, I don't think there's yet for the Australian populations. Okay. Can, I, can I get a historical perspective on this and, and we'll turn to our resident historian, Sophie. Uh, have there been examples in history where panic has accelerated because of the element of race, particularly around health panics? I mean, right here in Sydney, you know. So, so many of you might know that uh, part of our Sydney history is that we, we've long had uh, Chinese migration uh, here. And one of the first Chinatowns was, was not in Haymarket, uh, it was down at the Rocks. And um, in, in 1888, a, a ship arrived, uh, the, the Afghan, uh, with Chinese on board, and it arrived the same time as, as a smallpox outbreak um, was affecting the population in New South Wales. And the newspapers linked this to a young Chinese boy uh, in the Rocks living with his family, and they linked it incorrectly. So my, the point I'm trying to make here uh, is that it's so easy in these situations where things are moving very, very quickly, and they moved very quickly back then too, uh, to make you know, erroneous assumptions about the origin of infection, about how infection works, particularly because we're not all epidemiologists. <laughs> we don't all know much about this. Um, so there's definitely historical precedent. I might also say that that, that, that moment when the Afghan arrived uh, in Sydney was an early moment of kind of proto-globalisation. So, so we, we, we have this world now, um, and it started kind of back then, you know, with ships and, and with empires, where everything is connected and people are moving all the time, and we love the benefits of that, don't we? And I think we're less prepared uh, for the downside, which is that infections spread faster um, and they uh, affect us quicker. So I think we, need, we need to think about the challenges of living in this interconnected world and what that requires of us as citizens, and I think history can teach us quite a lot um, about that. In my first year at the University of Sydney, I wrote an essay entitled, and was, you don't remember many essays that you do at university, called, um, was, the, uh, was the mortality rate of the Black Death commensurate with its impact on the European imagination? And even with the Black Death, not nearly so many people could have died as are recorded to die because it would have been possible with the, impossible with the epidemiology of the disease. But these things spread panic. And the question mm -hmm. is, are you going to respond to the panic in a grown-up way yep. or are you going to um, let panic drive you apart as a community? And I think it also, can I just say, I think it also um, this idea of what our concept of universalism, and I, I made a, a slight remark around free education, but if we're actually talking about, you know, when we talk about the quality of our healthcare system, we talk about that as a universal healthcare system. Well, it's, it's, it's a very national healthcare system, right? So, so when you're talking about global pandemics, when you're talking about the travel of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that are not citizens of this country, that don't have access to the same healthcare in the countries that they are from regularly crossing borders to come, all of a sudden our concept of what is 
important to invest in globally, going back to these concepts of sort of globalization, what does it mean? The good bits of it, the idea of saying, well, as a country, it's in the interest of our, the health of our citizens to invest in foreign aid to ensure there's adequate medical treatment in other countries to ensure that if there is a pandemic, we don't suffer the consequences of it. When we look at this in terms of workplace relations, in terms of how well are treated, though, you know, the issues of transparency of that first doctor, and you look at the broader context of the lack of transparency in the, you know, in the Chinese Communist Party and the, and the very governance structures that mean that people may be fearful from speaking out, those issues of human rights and freedoms and transparency have an impact on the public health of people living in Sydney, whether or not they travel. And I think we have to change our sense of what are the things we advocate for rather than get protectionist about wanting to hold in so that we hold our own public health system or education system valued, but actually how do we share that so that there's no desire or need for people to come here for good quality healthcare because they have it also where they are. I just want to come back to you, Michael, on panic. Uh, panic can also exist in the workplace, and recently there were some reports about staff at the Louvre in Paris refusing to turn up to work because they were fearing uh, contracting the coronavirus. Uh, can, I, can I put to you a hypothetical? Um, given the panic that's, that's rising, how would the University of Sydney respond if there were to be, say, staff here who refused to be around students from China because it involves a health risk? So um, uh, I think there's a very simple answer to this. I think the university follows the public health advice. And so we make sure that our pandemic plan that you know, we've had long before the coronavirus um, uh, arose, that our pandemic plan is put in place, that we follow the advice of the government in relation to um, questions such as ours. And then if somebody doesn't want to teach because a student is Chinese or even because if they're Chinese and they, don't have a, they have a cough, then they don't want to teach. If they don't want to teach, they don't want to work. If they don't want to work, they don't want a job and they're not welcome at the university. We just, this is the kind of thing that we cannot as a community tolerate. The basic fact is of 25 million Australians, 25 million of them will die, right? Um, and that's just true. Not from the coronavirus. Not from the coronavirus. <laughs> um, but they'll die. Gosh, the, the, death, the responses on the live stream just went a death, little bit crazy death, there, Michael. Death, death and disease are a part of the human condition. And they've got to be managed sensibly by organisations applying the best advice. And we cannot, particularly in the environment of a university, that should model respect for science respect for um, 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 uh, 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 an intolerance for panic, an intolerance for hyperbole, an intolerance for overreaction. Um, that's, that's what a university has got a model for the community at large, and we will not tolerate racism. Can I just, okay, Abby, yes. Can I just say, um, I myself arrived in Australia a week before the travel ban was imposed. So I stayed in China at the time that the epidemic broke out, and the time that I got into Australia, it just bugs me that people here don't understand the, um, the, the many perspectives of the virus. They just imagine China being this place where everyone on the streets is carrying the virus, that, that people coming here is all dangerous. 
In the survey that we have done to students who are stranded in China at the moment, 99.9% .9 of the students have never been in contact with a confirmed coronavirus case. China is a very, very big country with billions of people, but the confirmed case in China is around five digits. So that put into perspective, that's equivalent to Goulburn having an epidemic, but barring the entire Australia going somewhere. And beyond that, well, I work at the Student Council. We have around 10 to 10 to 15 staff on rotation at all times. So in order to comply with the work health safety, safety measurements, I, I, I talked to them about like, giving them some basic information on how to protect themselves, telling them, like, I'm all safe, don't worry about it, it's all okay. Till today, the majority of Australian general public still doesn't know what's the type of mask that should be correctly used in protecting themselves in face of coronavirus. It's the N95 mask and also the medical mask that can, that can be fully resistant to spreading the, to, to, to stop the virus being transmitted to themselves. It's basic facts like this that the Australian general public doesn't know or the department is not spreading information to let people know that confuses me that how this is happening? Why? Okay, here's, here's how we'll do this because we are running out of time. I'll, I'll, I'll give the, all of the panellists a chance for one last word and if they wish to address any of the three questions that have just been posed, they may do so. Uh, one question there about what the university can do to promote messages about what people can do to protect themselves. The question about whether there are any lessons from the HIV crisis in the past that we can draw upon now and a question there about whether we need leaders to be more vocal in speaking out against racism. Um, Ying, why don't you kick us off? Um, final thought. Final thought. Okay, my key message is, is that um, the virus is spreading over uh, in 60 countries already, and we should all be united because the enemy is the virus, not a particular uh, ethnic or regional group. So in order to win the battle uh, against the virus, we have to um, work co more collaborative, uh, collaboratively. Jenny? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think the comment about the mask and the risk of wearing a mask and being a target is a, is a genuine concern that I think demonstrates that there are other public health and safety risks to people that look Chinese or look of Asian descent in terms of how they engage with the advice of others because of the risk that actually what you get back then is some kind of verbal abuse or other kind of attack as a result of you wearing the mask. I absolutely take that. I think there are lots of lessons we can learn from the AIDS ec epidemic and the response or the failed response and Justin Coonan who's the director of um, ACON, the AIDS Council of New South Wales, actually wrote a piece that was really um, I think quite insightful into how we can deal with with responding to epidemics and pandemics without fueling discrimination and fear. And I think it would be, you know, I absolutely would hope that um, at a state and at a federal level, talking to some of those AIDS councils and the advisory councils on how to do that mm. would be an impressive thing. And um, to, the, to our uh, friend at the back, I'd say, I'm guessing you didn't contact a Greens MP, but I'm always happy to uh, make a <laughs> comment about how much the Murdoch press attacks Chinese people. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I'm always happy to take the side of the Chinese community over the Murdoch press any day. Okay. Sophie. Okay. So what I think uh, history teaches us um, in this situation, and I think the AIDS um, epidemic is a great example here, uh, is that you know, human beings can do, do terrible things to each other. This was a, a community um, 
uh, and I, I've, I've studied um, um, for, for my teaching um, uh, some of the communities in Sydney that were affected by that epidemic, uh, that suffered deeply at that time. Um, however, in that very moment, um, small acts of um, small acts of cruelty were also met with small acts of kindness. So just as um, uh, there, are, there are particular ways in which racism can be spread by very small um, acts of cruelty, small kindnesses can go a very, very long way in communicating an alternative way of behaving in moments like this. I'm talking about people that reached out and did hold hands, that did touch people or help people uh, who were perceived to be um, affected with the AIDS uh, disease, HIV disease at that time. So I suppose what I'm saying is that at a grassroots level, we all have so many choices. This is not predetermined. This has a long way to play out. And what we can learn from um, situations like the AIDS epidemic is we all have a choice to choose um, our own path through this situation and to resist um, the herd mentality and panic that often comes with it. Abby. Um, I think the debate here is not whether coronavirus is contagious, but more so whether our policy making is, is in the right place and what's like and keeping up with the information about coronavirus right now. On the front page of the Washington Post today, it said that the US stock market is taking the biggest hit ever since the 2008 financial crisis. So our takeaway from here is that while we're discussing all the economic impact on the commercial sectors, on the corporate sector, or the bilateral trading relationship between China and Australia, I think it's very, it's, it's very important that we talk about university in a different sense, is that university is not a commercial sector. International students are no commodity or, or not a financial resources. People come here to attend university because they want to attain tertiary education in the first instance. What we're asking is, why university has shifted from a place where it's giving people's classes and then sending people who are becoming the leaders of society tomorrow from having all this debate and conversation about the over-commercialization. I think that's my question that's, that I'm leaving to the audience here. And Michael? So I think the fascinating thing about the masks is that just as... Um, uh, uh, is that medical practice, like everything else, is deeply enculturated. And one of the things about which there is enormous debate um, is the whether, not only whether or not masks are effective, but whether or not actually they extend the, um, increase the problem. And the wearing of masks um, is partly an Asian cultural practice that hasn't taken in other populations. I know that partly because um, during a smoggy day in Seoul, my father-in-law, who is Korean, desperately tried to get my um, non-Korean daughter-in-law, who is a doctor, to wear a mask, and she ended up giving him endless lectures about why it was making the situation worse, and he ended up responding about why she was going to die. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about this. Um, there's science, and then there's a whole lot of culture about the way that we respond to science. And the really interesting question is, is there a diversity of voices in Australian leadership that reflects the diversity of voices in the Australian community that allow us to have these conversations in a lively and inclusive way? And in that context, are people responsible, are people showing small acts of kindness, small acts of friendship that are building bridges? And I've been very proud to see things on the internet from our students saying, I want to share your note, um, and my notes with you because um, I'm here in classes and you're in China and you can't get them. And just some really positive stuff from the student community responding to, um, from the community of students here, responding to their peers who are overseas. I think diversity of practice, small acts of kindness make a difference. And then finally, um, to the last interlocutor, I think, yes, leadership matters. 
And at the end of the day, um, there is a kind of uh, uh, a, a certain sort of demonization of China and the Chinese that is going on in Australia at the moment. And this is a relationship that is incredibly important to Australia. And it's really important that um, leaders from civil society, as well as from business, as well as from politics, speak out about the rich opportunities that there are for collaboration, better collaboration between Australia and China. And in fact, as some of Sophie's other work has shown, the remarkable and complex intertwined personal histories that we have between Australia and China. This is a great friendship for us and a great friendship for our future. And we've got to have leaders speaking up for it at the moment. Well, folks, uh, perspective and proportion are very hard to come by at the moment when we have so much panic. But I, I think you'll all agree we've we got some valuable perspective and a lot of common sense and decency from our panel tonight. If you do leave tonight with some messages, uh, I hope you take out of this discussion the importance of empathy and kindness, the importance of having a diversity of voices in our public discourse, and finally, just how essential leadership is in setting the tone of our society. Uh, with that, will you please join me in thanking our panel, Yin Chang, Jenny Leong, Sophie Loy Wilson, Abby Shi, and Michael Spence. And we look forward to seeing you at the next Sydney Ideas. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.